Good morning, church family. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. We will be reading out of Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you do not have a Bible, please look in the seat back in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 500 of the Blue Bible. If you do not have one, please feel free to take that home as our gift to you. Um, God's word is everything. Let us read God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jim. Amen. Father, thank you um, that we have the privilege and the freedom um, to um, celebrate you um, and to proclaim the gospel to each other. And so, Lord, I, I pray that this morning you would speak through me and, um, Lord, use me in my weakness um, to remind us of the incredible Savior that we have in Jesus and the incredible hope that we have in Jesus. I pray that you would plant your word deeply in our hearts and change us and transform us and sanctify us and make us more like your son. And it's in his name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. You guys can have a seat. Um, it's uh, really good to see all of you. Uh, today is the second week of Advent. And Advent, as we said last week, is the season leading up to Christmas um, where, as the church, we first of all reflect and think about and celebrate what Jesus has done. And so we, we think about the incarnation, um, about Jesus taking on human form, humbling our, himself, being born into our world, and living a life that we couldn't live 
live, dying a death that we should have died um, so that we can have eternal life. And so that's, that's a big part of Advent. But Advent is also a time where we look forward to and we anticipate the promises that Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And so this is a time for the church um, to participate in longing and anticipation. So, so think, think about, remember back if you can, when you were a kid. Um, when I was a kid, the night before Christmas, right, it's so hard to go to bed. Do you all remember that? Um, because, you know, you, you've seen the presents sitting under the tree and, and you know what's coming. And then to have to go up into your room and lay in bed and you're like, man, i got to lay here for like eight hours before I can go wake mom and dad up. That's, that's painful, right, as a child? Because there's so much anticipation um, about what is coming. Uh, it's it's uh, similar um, to a bride and groom in the days leading up to the wedding. I remember those days. There was so much. There was so much joy. There was so much anticipation. Like I've been waiting so long to finally begin this life together, and I just I can't wait for it to be here. Anticipation, longing. That's what that's what Advent's about. And and over the four weeks of Advent, we're in a series called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God is with us. A holy, righteous, perfect, beautiful God dwelling with sinful, rebellious mankind. Emmanuel is a miracle. It's a miracle. And what I want us to see um, in these weeks is that, that Emmanuel, God dwelling with his people, is not just a Christmas story, but it's the story of all of Scripture from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And last week we talked about how the purpose of creation, the reason that God made you, is because he desires to dwell with you. And to be with you. Not in just kind of a, you know, kind of a spiritual sort of sense, but in a literal, physical sense. God desires to dwell with and to be with His people. That's why He made you. And we see in the, in the Garden of Eden at creation that, that heaven and earth, God and man are dwelling together in unity, in intimacy, in harmony. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and rebelled against Him, there was, there was a, a fracturing, a breaking, if you will, um, in this relationship between God and man, between heaven and earth. So now, in, instead of man dwelling with God in a perfect creation, instead, man is cut off from God. God withdraws His presence from mankind, and mankind is expelled from the garden, banished from the presence of God's, uh, the presence of God, and God's good creation is left rent and torn and cursed and ravaged by sin. However, as we said, that is not the end of God's story. 
Praise God, right? That's not the end. I, I, want, to, uh, I want you to remember this passage in Isaiah 46. Uh, this, this is a good passage um, to, to remember, to memorize, to think upon. And especially in a year like 2020, this is uh, uh, such a great scripture to call to mind and remember. Isaiah 46, uh, verses 8 through 10, says this, Remember this and stand firm. That's a great word. For us this year. Stand firm. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all, all my purpose. Now, there's a lot of bad theology floating around out there that would suggest, but God doesn't really know the future, and so he kind of rolls with the punches. And so he didn't necessarily know that COVID was coming, but, you know, now he's dealing with it and handling it, uh, you know, in as best a way he can. And listen, church, that is not the God of the scriptures. That is not the God we serve. Our God says in heaven, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. And God's overarching purpose, his purpose that doesn't change, his purpose that cannot be thwarted, is to be with and dwell with his people. And so throughout the Old Testament then, we see glimpses of God's presence with his people. God has not abandoned his people completely. In Genesis 3, like we talked about last week, he promises that the offspring of Eve, the offspring of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. And we go a few chapters later, we get to Genesis 12 and then Genesis 17. God calls a man named Abram, out of Babylon, and he establishes a covenant relationship with him. Here's what he says in Genesis 17, verses 6 through 8. God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. In chapter 12, God promises that through the seed, the offspring of Abraham, all of the nations on earth, will be blessed. And what God is promising in passages like these is that He will restore His creation to how it once was in the garden. And the hallmark of God restoring His creation is that He will once again dwell with His people. And so we continue then to see shadows of this all throughout the Old Testament, all through the Old Covenant. If you'll remember at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel 
And then he has them build the tabernacle, which is basically a really fancy, really expensive tent, right? Because Israel at the time is a mobile nation. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're kind of moving around all the time. And so the tabernacle is a tent where God's presence then dwells with the people. And then we read in Exodus how God's glory descends on the tabernacle and He dwells with Israel in the midst of them, in the midst of the camp. And so we have Emmanuel, God with us. Sort of, right? Sort of. So God's presence is certainly with Israel, the scripture tells us. But it's very different than how he dwelled with Adam and Eve, right? It's, it's not the same. In, in the Garden of Eden we read that, that God, God literally walked and talked with Adam and Eve. He was physically with them. They saw him face to face. They they participated in enjoying the creation together. They they were they were together dwelling together in every sense. But with Israel, we see separation still between God and man. And so God's presence does reside in the camp, in the tabernacle, but there's a curtain that separates God's presence from the people, right? There's a curtain that literally acts as a barrier between the, the Holy of Holies where God dwells and then the rest of the tabernacle and the, the surrounding camp. So, as an Israelite, you couldn't just wake up and say, you know what, I just want to enjoy and soak in the presence of God today. And so I'm just going to meander over to the tabernacle. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to kind of sweep the curtain out of the way. And I'm, I'm just going to sit by the ark and sing worship songs and enjoy God's presence. Couldn't do that, right? Uh, you could try and you would end up dead if you, if you did that. Um, Imagine, uh, imagine that, that back when I got married um, and you were asking me about my new wife, imagine I said to you, you know what, my wife, she is so great. She is, she is beautiful, she is, she is talented, she is wise, um, she's, she's just wonderful in every way. She does live in a, a different part of the house and I'm not allowed to go in there except for one time a year. And she told me if I go in at the wrong time, she'll kill me. But otherwise, she's really great and you should get to know her. You would, you would most likely wonder what kind of relationship I'd gotten myself into, right? And, and God is sometimes seen in the Old Testament as, as distant and harsh. You know, is this really a loving God? But the reality is, is that because of our sin, because of our rebellion, mankind is still cursed. Heaven and earth is still fractured and separated. And, and a sinful, unrighteous people cannot dwell in the presence of a holy and perfect God. And the Old Testament serves to show us that there is nothing 
There is absolutely nothing that mankind can do to reunite heaven and earth. There is nothing that you and I can do to earn our way back into the presence of God. Now that's what every religion ever invented attempts to do, right? Maybe, maybe if I'm good enough for long enough, maybe if I try hard enough, maybe if I read the Bible enough, maybe if I don't miss church very often, maybe if I I serve in this way, maybe if I'm nice to my neighbor and I, I, I give a little bit money, maybe hopefully by the end of my life I'll have done enough to tip the scale so that God will be pleased with my life. And hopefully, maybe, I'll have done enough to get in. Right? That's what, that's what a religion attempts to do. Um, and the Old Testament shows us uh, time and time again that mankind is incapable of restoring presence, union with God. We can't do it. And we're shown over and over again that mankind desperately needs a Savior. We need a better Adam. And the Old Testament shows us over and over again that none of us are the better Adam. Right? Uh, have Have you ever wondered why the Bible is so straightforward about showcasing the flaws of its heroes? Have you ever wondered that? And and the reason is, the reason is because there really is only one hero in the story, right? There's only one. And all the other great characters throughout the Old and New Testament, right, the people we read about in Hebrews 11, they are just as much in need of a Savior and a Rescuer as you and I, right? Adam... Adam failed in his responsibility to be king and priest over God's creation. Failed miserably. We talked about that last week. Uh, then we get to Noah. Well, you know, Noah, he seems like a pretty upstanding guy, right? The Bible says that the Lord, in a very sinful generation, the Lord found favor with Noah. But then we get to this weird story in Genesis 9 where Noah gets drunk and he passes out naked in front of his kids. And and uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, I'm not the perfect father, but I at least haven't done that yet. Um, and so I, I count that as a win in, in my parenting book. Noah had problems. Abraham, the father of Israel. Abraham had trouble believing God's promises that he would provide him with a son. And so in Genesis 16, he decides to kind of take matters into his own hand. And he thinks, well, I'm just, I'm just going to marry one of my wife's servants and I'll sleep with her and I'll have a son that way. Isaac... Um, had some major parenting issues. Uh, Jacob was an untrustworthy cheat a lot of the time. Uh, Moses, the great deliverer from Egypt, God calls Moses to deliver Israel. And and, and all Moses does in Exodus chapter 4 is give reasons and excuses why God has the wrong guy, right? I, can you relate to that? I can, I can painfully relate to that. Where, you know, you sense the Lord calling you to do something. And it's like, uh, God, I, th- I think you got the wrong person. I think you meant so-and-so, right? 
Moses was full of excuses why he wasn't the guy to do what God was calling him to do. Aaron, the high priest, literally made a false god for the Israelites to worship in the wilderness. And he had some major jealousy issues at time when it came to his brother Moses. King David, a man after God's own heart, the greatest king Israel ever saw, maybe, maybe this is the guy who can restore peace between heaven and earth, right? Well, we know David's story. Um, We know he was an adulterer. We know he was a murderer. And David could not even manage his own children, let alone restore peace between God and man. Well, maybe King Solomon, his son, who was the wisest man, right? Paul, Paul read about that this morning. The wisest man to ever live. Maybe this is the guy we've been waiting for. Well, Solomon had a bit of a lady problem, to put it mildly, right? Um, I don't know about you, husbands. I have trouble treating one woman the way she deserves to be treated. Um, Solomon thought he could take on a thousand. Um, So uh, apparently his wisdom was starting to wane in his later years. And in fact, we read that many of his wives and concubines served foreign gods, served idols, and then caused him to turn his heart to idols as well and to worship other gods. So throughout the Old Testament, there is still separation between heaven and earth, between God and man. God cannot fully dwell with mankind. And in the, in the tabernacle, and then later we see the same in the temple, there is a literal barrier, a curtain, to keep people out of the holy presence of God. A literal, physical separation. Reminding the people that man cannot be where God is. No earthly priest or king or prophet, no no sacrifice, no ritual can restore God's presence that was enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. And when the Old Testament then comes to a close, Jerusalem has been sacked, the temple has been destroyed, the people of God have been taken into exile, and even after a remnant returns and begins to rebuild the temple, um, it's only a shadow of what it used to be. However, God's purpose, His unchanging purpose, remains. And God's purpose is to dwell with his people, Emmanuel. And throughout the constant failure of God's people in the Old Testament, throughout their sin and rebellion, God makes promise after promise after promise. Uh, Promises like Ezekiel 37 that we read last week. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Promises like Isaiah chapter 9. For to us, right? You guys know the verse, right? For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, the government 
shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right? And then it says, it says of his, his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Promises like Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. God is promising a ruler, a rescuer, a redeemer, the the same one he's promised all along since Genesis 3, who will save his people and reunite heaven and earth. And Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and on and on and on, none of them could do it. None of them could were great enough. None of them were good enough. And so this this promised Messiah then must be must be so incredibly great and strong and powerful and glorious if he can do things that Moses and Abraham and David couldn't do, right? Anticipation. And then between Malachi and the Gospels, we have about 400 years of silence. Um, God is silent. He doesn't speak. And the people of God are waiting. As, as they're in exile, as they, as they seek to rebuild, they're waiting for the promised Messiah. They're waiting for the promised Savior. And, and they must have been wondering, what is God's amazing rescue plan going to look like? What's it going to look like? Surely it's going to be huge and glorious and wonderful. I wonder if they were thinking maybe God's going to do like he did in Egypt, right? And he's going to rain down plagues of judgment and deliver us from Rome or Babylon or whoever um, and, and bring his people um, out of bondage. Whatever it is, though, it's, 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 it's surely going to be awesome. And, uh, and we all... We all love a good rescue story, right? It's just, it's kind of hardwired in us, right? Whether, whether you like your, you know, your classic Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella type stories, um, where, you know, the, the princess or the, the maiden is brought out of poverty and she marries the prince and becomes, becomes royalty, um, or, uh, or more, a more modern rescue story. I don't know if y'all remember. Do y'all remember the story of the soccer team in Thailand that got trapped in the cave? Um, how many of you heard about that story? Um, I, I believe that was in 2018. And, uh, and I remember hearing about it, and they, they talked about it on the news a little bit. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, that's a cool story. There were some kids in a cave for a long time, and, uh, and then they, you know, there was you know, some submerged part, and so then they brought them out, and, and everyone lived. And cool, that's a, that's a cool story. Well, Katie and I watched a documentary um, on that story a few months back, and that is one of the most amazing, miraculous stories that I have ever heard of. Um, so these these twelve boys, a uh, soccer team, and their coach, they're you know 
exploring this popular cave when there starts to be a torrential downpour. And so the water starts to come flooding in. And so it pushes them farther and farther back into the cave system. Um, and they miraculously, at the, at the very end, they find this tiny little offshoot of a tunnel that goes up. Otherwise, they would have, they would have been drowned because the water had risen so high. And so they get trapped in this tiny little branch of a passageway, um, in this tiny little corner of a cave, and the water is literally feet from them. And they spend... You know, trapped in the pitch black, they are there for days and days. Um, and it's, it's an absolute miracle that the divers even ever found them. Because they were about two and a half miles into the cave system. But by the grace of God, um, a couple of divers pop up in this little space and they find these 12 kids in their coach just sitting there in the dark. Um, and so now the question is, okay, we found the boys. How are we going to get them out? And then commences this incredible, incredible rescue operation. Uh, because what I didn't know is, is first of all, um, they're, they're two and a half miles into the cave system. And massive, massive stretches of that is completely underwater. And these are, these are tiny pitch black passageways to get two and a half miles under this mountain to where the boys are trapped. Right, um, and to get um, to get one of the boys from where they're trapped out to the opening of the cave uh, is about a three-hour journey. Just taking them through these tiny passageways, and so they they sent up they set up a series of cables, um, uh, a series of stations of oxygen tanks, and so basically what these rescue divers have to do they have to take a kid and they have to drag him for three hours through tiny tunnels in the pitch black, and their only hope is holding on to one small little guide wire, and if you lose hold of that rope. You're dead. You're finished. You're not going to find it again. You're going to be lost and you're going to run out of oxygen, right? Um, but then they started talking about, okay, well, if we're going to get these boys out, um, you know, they're not seasoned divers, especially cave divers. Um, if they panic and start to struggle, that's going to mean their death and the death of the diver trying to rescue them. So what they had to do is take a strong sedative. They had to inject it into the boys. And so they're literally swimming um, for three hours through these dark, pitch black tunnels with one hand on the guide wire and one hand pulling an unconscious teenager behind them. Um, but then they had to time it perfectly so that they could stop and re-inject the boys so that they don't wake up mid-swim. And this, I mean, this was an incredible operation and ordeal and somehow somehow after hours and hours and 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 days they were able to bring every single boy and their coach to safety i mean it's an absolute miracle uh i encourage you to to go you know Read, read on it or watch a documentary or something. But so all that to say, I'm, I'm sitting there. Katie and I are sitting there. We're watching this, this rescue story and it's just like, there's just something in you that's like, yes, when you see people, uh, that are, that are trapped, that have no hope being rescued, being brought from darkness back into the light. We love stories about helpless people being rescued. 
from evil and danger, right? I mean, I'm not the only one, right? We love that. And I think the reason is, is because all of us, every one of us, are living through the greatest rescue story ever conceived, ever told. And that is God working to rescue His people from the clutches of the evil one, to rescue His people from sin and death and the curse that we brought upon ourselves when we rebelled against the Lord in the garden. But God's rescue story turns out, I think, to be a little bit different than what most people were probably expecting and waiting for and hoping for. God's huge, grand rescue story begins with a pregnant, unmarried teenager in Nazareth. Now, the town of Nazareth is a little backwater town of no influence, no importance whatsoever, and would have been the last place in the world that any Israelite would have expected a great leader and Messiah and deliverer to come from. Uh, if you'll remember in the Gospel of John, uh, Philip is, is saying to Nathaniel, he's saying, hey, we found the Messiah, the promised one, and he's from Nazareth. And, uh, and Nathaniel says, um, can anything good come from Nazareth? You remember that? See, nothing good or noteworthy had ever come from Nazareth. Ever. And not only does the Messiah come from Nazareth, but he comes from a poor, unknown teenage girl who is not even married at the time. Now, Israel would have expected and would have been waiting for someone, someone, someone great. Right? Someone, maybe someone born into royalty, maybe, maybe a military leader. But instead, God plans his rescue story through Mary, um, a nobody. And not just a nobody, but since she wasn't married, she would have been, she would have been scorned and ridiculed by her people. In that culture, in that time, to be pregnant outside of marriage was the ultimate disgrace. And ultimate shame. But this is how God brings his Messiah into the world. Because if you haven't figured this out yet, God delights in glorifying himself in unexpected ways. God delights in glorifying his strength through our weakness. Right? So, Joseph, Mary's fiancé, um, he's going to divorce Mary quietly because what's Joseph supposed to think, right? I mean, really, imagine that conversation. Uh, Joseph, I'm pregnant, but it's not what you think. right? Have you, have you ever thought about how difficult that conversation must have been? But the scriptures tell us that, that God appears to Joseph uh, in a dream and confirms that this is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary pregnancy. And so uh, Joseph marries Mary. And while she is very pregnant, they go to Bethlehem to be counted in a census, right? 
You know, they, they tell you when you're, preg- when you're really pregnant, you shouldn't um, travel by plane. Um, I would also add to you ladies, just some advice, also not advisable to travel by donkey when you're extremely pregnant. That's just for free. Um, you can take that bit of wisdom. Um, but they, they end up in Bethlehem for the census, and Jesus is born not in a palace, right? Jesus is born in a place where animals are kept. The most humble of origins. And this then uh, sets the scene for our passage that we read this morning in Luke chapter 2. And I want you to try to picture this with me. Um, I, don't, I don't know if, if you're like me at all, but a lot of times I, I, I wish like I could like go back and witness events in history, um, especially biblical events. And if I could do this, um, this moment in time would be um, at, at or near the top of my list, right? So I, I want you to imagine this with me. Um, there are shepherds um, outside of Bethlehem. Now, shepherds are not very important people. They're, they're pretty low on the socioeconomic ladder. Um, but they are outside of Bethlehem, and they're doing what shepherds do, which is they're watching a bunch of sheep, right? Um, they're watching over their sheep to make sure that none of them wander away, that none of them are attacked by wild animals, so on and so forth. And so um, they're sitting outside of the town in the hills, pitch black, right? There's, there's, there's not a lot of city lights around in those days. Um, they're sitting in the dark, you know, maybe, maybe a small fire, I would imagine. Um, but all of a sudden, the glory of God, the glory of heaven breaks into the pitch black, um, and I would imagine that it was similar to what creation was like. When over the, the darkness and chaos of creation, God speaks, let there be light. Right? And so, uh, naturally, the shepherds, they're absolutely terrified. I mean, can you imagine? You would have been, you would have been terrified too. They're, they're sitting there in the pitch black, minding their own business when the glory of heaven breaks in all around them. But there's something so wonderful and so marvelous about this passage that I, I want, you to, want you to see this morning. And, and we'll close then after that. Remember Genesis 3. God expels and banishes Adam and Eve from his presence. Exodus 19. Uh, the people have been brought out of Egypt and God uh, is making a covenant with them. And he descends in glory on Mount Sinai on the mountain, right? Um, and he sets up boundaries and he says, you cannot come to where I am. And if you cross this line, you will be put to death. And then all throughout the Old Testament is the reminder that mankind is guilty of sin and cannot enter the presence of God. The wages of sin is death. There is war and enmity between mankind and between God. But then on this glorious night, outside of Bethlehem, Luke chapter 2, the angel appears to the shepherds and he says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. After thousands of years 
of brokenness between heaven and earth. After thousands of years of rebellion against God, separation from God, enmity towards God, God appears to mankind and proclaims peace. God is doing something new here in Luke chapter 2. God is doing what He promised from the beginning He would do. God is sending the serpent crusher, the Savior, the Ruler, the Rescuer, the Redeemer. God is sending Emmanuel to His people. God is making a way for God and man to dwell together again. And ultimately... God brings reconciliation, not through a birth, but through a death, right? Jesus, the promised Messiah, took our sin and our curse, and He put it on Himself, and He bore it on the cross, and He crushed the serpent's head by being humiliated and tortured on a cross. And Jesus, Jesus went gladly and willingly because through the cross, He has reconciled His people back to Himself. Right? Remember, remember what happened um, when Jesus died. Matthew 27, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom. And the earth shook. And the rocks were split. This giant 60 foot high thick curtain. Which for centuries had represented the separation between God and man. At the death of the Savior is torn right down the middle. And listen to this, Hebrews 9.24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Jesus, through His death and resurrection, enters into heaven, into the very presence of God, from which man has been expelled and exiled, and He stands before a holy God on your behalf. And because Jesus represents you, you are once again welcomed into the presence of God. Jesus enters the presence of heaven from which we have been banished. And he stands before his father on your behalf, on my behalf. And he says, they're with me. They are with me. Through Christ, through Emmanuel, like the father of the prodigal son, God opens wide his arms to you. And if you will trust in his son, if you will trust in Jesus as your Lord, as your king, as your deliverer, as your rescuer, then God is waiting to embrace you. You are no longer met by a flaming sword you are met by an embrace from your Father. So, for this second week of Advent, um, 
Can we give thanks for our Savior? Can we give thanks for our Rescuer? Can we give thanks that God desired so much to be with and dwell with us that He orchestrated the greatest rescue plan ever conceived? That He sent His precious one and only Son to live and die on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to Him again. Uh, Let's pray. Father, this is, it's, it's truly, it is truly miraculous that you desire to be with us. Um, it's, it's hard to even wrap our minds around. Um, all we can do, Lord, is, is give you thanks and give you praise. And Jesus, thank you that you, so many years ago, humbled yourself um, and were born into poverty and um, lived a life full of temptation, full of difficulty, and then went to a cross on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to you and so that we might dwell with you again. Um, that is a miracle of grace. And we are so thankful and grateful, Lord. May we never forget that. Lord, may we not get busy thinking about shopping in presence um, when you have made a way for us to dwell with you again. Lord, I, I pray that that above all would be what we celebrate these weeks, Lord. Emmanuel, God with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to close this morning um, celebrating the Lord's Supper together, as we always do. Um, and and what, a, what a joy, what a privilege it is um, that we have before us here a reminder week after week after week of the lengths that our loving Father has gone to um, that he might be with and dwell with his people. Um, and, it, and it costs, what a cost there was, the precious life of his son. Um, but it was not a cost that our father counted too high. Um, and I, I think of coming and celebrating at the table. Um, it's, it's a lot like uh, I was thinking this week of my son Jude, and Jude's adopted, and... Every year on um, August 29th, we celebrate um, the day that he officially, legally became a part of our family. And we'll celebrate that day till the day we die. That is one of the best days of the year for us, um, celebrating um, our son. Um, and uh, and, and this, this is what we get to do every single week. We get to come to the Lord's table that He graciously opens to us, and we get to celebrate that we are counted now through Jesus. We are counted sons and daughters um, as our Father in heaven. What a joy, what a privilege that is. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, these words we know very well. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, 
took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the the broken body, the shed blood of your son, for the forgiveness of our sin. Thank you that we have hope of an eternal dwelling with you because of what Jesus did on our behalf. We give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. And now, if you will um, uh, put your hands in a receiving position. Um, I want to read um, the benediction over you, Um, the same one we read last week and the same one we'll read for the next two weeks, Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, which says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Go in peace. Be blessed.